Okay, and we're recording. So, um, how are you today, my friend? I am good. Um, can't complain. I got to see family last night. Uh, engagement party in the family. There you go. So, I uh, got to meet up with a friend that's starting a new job this week, so we were celebrating at Cooper's Hall. Ah, okay. Yes, as you said, a uh, lot of whiskey that you had to <laughs> wash out of your uh, wash out of your pores. Oh my god. Um, but this is episode three of the history of what's happening right now. Uh, I have my sister Francesca is not here, but today we have a special guest, Satnam. Uh, we'll add in applause music if, or <laughs> we'll add in applause sound effects if we need it. But good to have you today, my friend. How are you doing? I'm good. Well, that's um, good. Yeah. Um, you said you had a red hot take on um, Ukraine, and um, I'm eager to hear what you have to say. So I would say this is more of an update that I think that is very important to hear. Um, it's it, The Ukrainian military has been doing a pretty good job. And I think mm -hmm. that um, a lot of that is, you know, they're in a position where they have to fortify their defense positions. It's their country. Right. They're doing all these things. But I think that one thing that they haven't been able to do is take offensive positions. But sure. That has changed. So what we're seeing right now is that they had about a 12-mile radius around Kiev. Mm -hmm. um, that's what they were able to maintain. They've made some gains. Now it looks like it's about 20 to 25-mile radius around Kiev that they've been able to push back the Russians. Okay, there you go. Um, a big thing is that the Russians are actually uh, running out of supplies. And yeah. I think that... Ultimately, what they need is there's a bridge uh, that connects uh, Crimea to the rest of Ukraine that the Russians have not been able to take over. Hmm. And I think that from a logistical um, standpoint of getting supplies to their troops, um, that's going to be a big thing. So what we don't know and what is scary at this point is... Putin, his only real advantage here is he has nukes, which mm -hmm. is a huge... I shouldn't dismiss that as his only advantage. This is right. a huge advantage. Uh, nuclear holocaust potential is what this advantage is. And he, we don't know what he's willing to do because uh, anybody who thought he was a rational actor, mm -hmm. they no longer know what he's going to do because the rational thought would be do not invade Ukraine because... Economic sanctions are going to be levied. Um, the oligarchs who have lost, I think it's close to a trillion dollars at this point. Yikes. They're, they're, they're upset. And I also want to reiterate that Putin, he is not of the Bolshevik tradition of the people. Mm -hmm. Putin is of the czarist tradition of I am king. <laughs> so... You think so, huh? I think so. And I think like he's... He's implemented an oligarchy that does not is not of the people. It's of uh, those other traditions, the czar's traditions. And so I think that Putin is losing um, the um, public relations battle mm -hmm. because he literally picked a war with a country that is uh, that has so much ties with Russia. You'll have one parent that's Russian and one parent that's Ukrainian. It would be as ridiculous of a situation as if America had gone to war with Canada. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and I think, like, there are literally, he um, like, Russian military heroes that have used 
the phrase of our Slavic brothers in in Orthodox Christianity, like right. we do not want to attack our Slavic brothers, and so like I think that it cannot be mis uh, construed any more than like what is transpiring. Like Putin, he totally miscalculated on this entire front. And I think that because he's gotten away, he got away with Crimea. Right. Um, and there was a reason for that. There's a large Russian uh, um, uh, population there. So that ethnic Russians. He got away with Chechnya. But the reality is that a lot of the world, the Western powers, I'm sorry, I hate to say it, they don't care about Muslims. Mm -hmm. So, like, it, who the victim is it matters. And so... The Ukrainians, I think that from a public relations standpoint, the Russian people, they view, they see themselves sure. in the Ukrainians. So this is, uh, you brought up a lot there, by the way. Also, we, we just dived right into it. Um, history of what's <laughs> happening now. And this is the episode on the war in Ukraine or the, you know, invasion, the war of uh, Russian aggression, as uh, the Ukrainians might call it, you know. Coming Sunday. in hot, sorry. <laughs> or, that's fine, that's fine. Um, as it might be known in later textbooks, well, you know, who knows how this is going to go down. Um, but yeah, so um, I don't think, have I told you what like the concept of the what we're doing is or what we're doing and how we're doing it? Not really. Okay. Because uh... I don't, uh, um, I studied history in college and also, by the way, I'm kicking around the idea of changing the name of the podcast from the history of what's happening right now to trust me i'm a history major um, <laughs> okay so like your your reaction to that is also good um <laughs> if you like the sound of that my sister's like i don't like my history of what's happening right now and i'm like okay whatever what do you got that's better and i'm listening and i get dead air from her so uh, uh so this will be interesting but also it's the i call it the history of what's happening right now is because i consider I don't watch the news. I don't read the news. I don't, you know, I don't seek it out. I hear bits and pieces every here and there. I subscribe to like one news podcast and it's kind of like, uh, you know, global. It's like, what's happening in the world right now? And they have their bits on, you know, the, what's going on in the U.S., what's going on in any other part of the world that's hot right now. But they have their, it's called The Economist. Uh, I don't know. Shout out to them. Props to them. Big ups to them. I don't know. Whatever kind of endorsement you want to give them. But they're, they're a traditional uh, magazine or news magazine or whatnot. But yeah, I, don't, I don't know what's going on. I don't watch the local news or anything like that. I don't watch the national news. So this is where I'm trying to like bridge the gap between what's actually happening in the world right now versus what happened. And uh, I told my sister, I'm like, I don't care what's going on. I just want to know what happened. And she's like, huh, okay, interesting. Well, do, uh, let me ask you, do you tune out from the news because of how hyperbolic it can be sometimes? Like, is it exhausting? Like uh, yeah, it's exhausting. It's, like you say, hyperbolic. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I don't know who or, who or what to believe um, at this point. But I get it. Like, you, if you're going to be a journalist, you go to school to become a journalist. So you learn how to, you know, uh, research the news. Or I should say, not research, but you know, validate your sources and so on and so forth. You do the same in history. You need to... I think I think what the problem is that far too many people, they don't look into how is a newscast funded. Mm -hmm. And I think that ultimately, 
in no matter what industry, like, you know, we're colleagues. Sure. And and so in in any industry, you know who your clients are. Mm-hmm. You know who you have to like uh, cozy up to in order for your paycheck to come in. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the danger that we have when it comes to things like war. Sure. When it comes to things like healthcare, when it comes to various other things, we get our news from people that rely on advertising dollars that run counter to the um to the actual benefit of our people and i think that this is true in russia as well yeah i think that we can see that um obviously there's propaganda i was i and to be fair there's and in war i like propaganda is to be expected Mm -hmm. russia is fully propaganda like pre-war um but i think that it's important to remember that Ukraine also is engaging in this, um, and they have um, they have a propaganda machine set up, and mm-hmm. they have to, um, sure. and they need uh, the world stage to the world to actually benefit their cause. And Zelensky is very smart in mm-hmm. what he's been doing. I was gonna say, yeah, the media the media campaign that he's uh, you know uh, that he's running right now, or that who, whoever he hired to do it. Um, it's phenomenal um, how he's garnering support um, overseas in the broadcasts that we're seeing, you know, of him uh, wandering around, of course, wearing a flak jacket. Um, great photo op, I must say. But, uh, I mean, it's, it's real. These, ru- these Russians are coming for him. Um, well, I want to get your opinion on one thing that he's done. Um, I'm not sure what I f- how I feel about this. So, mm-hmm. so Zelensky has... Um, Recently, he uh, after a couple weeks where this was not the case, he has suspended independent media. Sure. In in Ukraine, that I I, I kind of understand. I understand if you're under martial law right. while you're at war, um, because America has done the same uh, during the world wars. That was something that we tightly um, kept kept it to the best. Actually. The Spanish flu, for example, that actually originated in uh, Kansas, uh, many think. And so it ultimately got called the Spanish flu because uh, Spain was one of the few countries that was not censoring their media. Mm -hmm. And so they were the most honest in reporting about the the pandemic. Um, And so they... I didn't know that. Right. So, So ultimately, that's one thing to always consider, to understand how that works and so in times of war even um even social democracies um and that value freedom of the press right even they have uh suspended freedom of the press at times and so like uh Zelensky did that but uh that I think is murky Mm -hmm. Uh, other societies have done it one thing I I'm not sure if I agree with though and I I want to get your take so he also has uh, disbanded uh, parliament parliamentarians that are of a pro-Russia party in right. Ukraine. He has outlawed this party, and they base. I don't think he needed to do this because they basically amount to ten percent of their parliament, and they don't have the ability to enact any political power or change. Sure. So, so your thoughts. <laughs> The, this is, oh my gosh, there's so much to talk about. Um, and me being the history major, um, I, like, I even took history and culture of Russia in college. So the first thing they teach you is that, oh, where does Russian history start? Kiev. Kiev. It starts in that part of the world. Um, 
and even then it goes further back because the Mongols had invaded into that part of Europe. Uh, to this day, they say that the Mongols had no influence on you know Eastern Europe's culture, but in Russia, uh, the word for money is the same word as it is in Mongolia to this day, at least according to my history and culture of Russia. Professor. Don't they also use the Cyrillic alphabet in both? So Cyrillic, Cyrillic, Cyrillic? I, 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 I don't know how to say it, but you know, I'm not sure. Um, but the Russia of itself being the largest, you know, country in, in the world by landmass has, you know, more than 300 different, you know, indigenous languages between all the people that, um, um, you know, reside within its national borders. So, you know, once the Soviets consolidated their power and started taking stock of what they had, uh, they found these, you know, tribal people, you know, they needed bodies because they had this huge brain drain of intellectuals that left the country because of all the, uh, you know, uh, uh, criticism, uh, you know, that those people would soon receive because they were, they could be political opposition to the Bolsheviks. They were the Mensheviks, which Bolshevik, I think, just means majority, and Menshevik, I think, is a the Russian word for minority. But uh, if if my r Russian is accurate, I might not be. But anyway, um, so you said up top, you're like, yeah, why is he, why is Zelensky censoring the media right now? And it's like, well, yeah, is that a good move or a bad move? Again, it depends on your perspective, but. The country is at war, so um, if you have people within the country, uh, even if it's 10% that are, you know, were elected officials that are pro-Russian, that's going to be a problem for <laughs> expelling it's, the Russians. It's hard to criticize what Zelensky does, right? Um, yeah. I, I, I think it, you cannot understate the fact that he is the president of the country he needs to look out for the ukrainian people but he's mm -hmm. also the ace of spades on putin's assassination list sure sure um his his wife his children they are on that list too like his entire family is uh so uh there i you have to give some grace um that doesn't excuse i like any war crimes if they are committed or anything mm -hmm. like that i, I just want to clarify but he's on one hand, acting as the president of a sovereign nation that was invaded. Yeah. But on the other hand, he's acting as a man who has a price on his head. Yeah. <laughs> so like, too. I don't know how to how to uh, reconcile the fact that he gets some grace if he gets sloppy in some things. I don't like um, the idea that from a from a PR standpoint because mm. it's not strategically necessary to disband the pro-Russian party that accounts for about 10% of their MPs. Sure. I get why he did it. I do, but I, I just don't think it's necessary. And I think from a PR standpoint, he was winning the propaganda PR battle sure, uh, sure. over Russia. Like I think the world sees clearly what's going on. I don't think you need to delve into the idea that are you really trying to be an authoritarian ruler and just uh, just cut off the opposition as, as Putin did? Because he needs to keep the moral high ground. Right, yeah. So a move like this, kind of like you say, um, it may, politically, it may help him in the long run because now he could eliminate these people and install or just have another election and hopefully uh, if he disperses more Ukrainians into those formerly but, Russian districts. But it hurts him in international relations um, and the international yeah. PR. Because Ukraine 
they um they are fighting valiantly. Mm-hmm. Their military is very good, but they need continued support from the international community. Sure, they definitely do. Um, and yeah, it whether it's the long run or the short term, or whether it's going to help him gain more political favor from the West. Yeah, as soon as you start censoring censoring journalists, it starts to make you wonder why. What are these journalists, you know, reporting on that he doesn't want them reporting on? Um, but again, Ukraine is the underdog in this in this situation, um, and to have Zelensky, you know, appeal to Western powers for help, um, and they're kind of scrambling to figure out what the best move is. Because uh, I think you've, I'm sure you've heard in a lot of the reports that a lot of European powers are unwilling to get involved because as soon as they do, Russia can twist a knob and turn the gas supply off to them. Have you heard that at all? Are you familiar with this? I have. And I think that, so, you know, obviously there's environmental reasons why we need to uh, get off of oil and we need to move towards renewable energy. Sure. Um, And I think that we have to consider the transition period because not everybody can uh, just go out and buy an electric vehicle. Right, 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 exactly. There's like impracticalities to that. But on the other hand, about 85% of all carbon emissions are um, from factories. And Mm -hmm. like, um, so regulation would actually uh, do quite a bit. And also that that would do quite a bit um, to get away from oil dependency. If you start using like we these are things we can implement today, mm-hmm. tomorrow, um, you know, over the course of a year, a decade, whatever. Solar uh, uh, like a solar fields at business campuses uh, to prevent toxic waste. Yeah. Um, that is something that can be done on a global scale, and I think that. Like, one of the things that people need to uh, do, uh, invest more energy in, is strategy. How do we get, we, we have the means, and I was actually discussing this with my buddy today. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things that um, we, sometimes it should be self-evident that people would want a cleaner planet, but it's not always the case, right? Right. So you need to make the economic uh, argument, but you also need to make the argument of, uh, international relations with despots mm-hmm. like do we want our reliance of oil to prop up these horrible authoritarian regimes because does their wealth uh, does that help them to do bad shit like mm-hmm. in in uh, and like kind of possibly accident accidentally or purposefully get us into nuclear war right <laughs> so yeah this is this is pretty interesting because um, you've got um, you after World War two you have this you know east versus west uh, you know communist bloc backed by the Soviet Union and then you know and the Warsaw Pact versus you know the NATO alliance nations which is all of you know Western Europe and like they knew uh, Russia's been resource rich, you know, this entire time. It's just got so much land, um, but for whatever reason, it's been a country that's had difficulty feeding itself because of the arable land that's out there, you know, uh, you have nomadic tribes that operate, you know, in the far, far uh, east of the country, and yeah, there's a lot of resources out there, but like, how do you get to them? You don't have the infrastructure out there yet. 
and it's now different. <laughs> yeah ukraine has access to the um um to the black sea and you know by way of action black access to the mediterranean so it's strategically valuable um for which they which can is, feed themselves they could feed themselves too um and the relationship to the west um or being so close to the mediterranean means they can trade with a lot of mediterranean um you know uh, countries are a lot of Western Europe, uh, not just by land, but by sea as well, which we all know is much cheaper, depending on who you're talking to. Um, but yeah, I, I was kind of blown away by that statistic, too, that they supply as much grain as they do to the world. Well, well you know, I, I think it's an undertold story about why Ukraine. Um, so Ukraine, uh, and I think we need to... so. When people talk about Russian identity, Ukrainian identity, mm -hmm. it's complicated. And yeah. I, so I'll speak for myself. I'm a Punjabi uh, Sikh uh, male from, uh, my family is from the state of Punjab in, in Northwest India. Um, and there's par a portion of Punjab that is in Pakistan as well. Mm -hmm. was, during the partition, it, the state was divided. It was very strange how it was divided but the british that's what they would do yeah they actually created a east pakistan and a west pakistan as well mm -hmm. and east pakistan is present day bangladesh they're separated by thousands of miles of india mm -hmm. they were not connected yeah, yeah so like it made no sense it was just like one area that was muslim one area that and all that so that's how partitions work mm -hmm. but the reason why i bring that up is because the state I'm from was always considered a prize because it was the breadbasket of mm, India. Okay. So Ukraine um, and also India is similar in uh, to that region in terms of having many different dialects, many different languages, and yes, that sure. are some sometimes mutually intelligible, sometimes not. And so, <laughs> like, <laughs> right. And so, like, it's complicated. And so, I think that what people need to understand is that. Ukraine is its own identity, but it is does share cultural similarities with Russia. So, uh, and I think this and, is where I could speak a little bit more to it, because I think I mentioned earlier that, you know, when we started learning about the history and culture of Russia, they're like, oh, well, let's look at Kiev. And Kiev was the, you know, power center that the, um, that the Mongols traded a lot with. Mm -hmm. um, and I think Moscow or Muscovy or whatnot, only started increasing its power by the amount of wealth that it had, you know, accrued from trading and trading with the Mongols at the time, just paying the Mongols to go away. So then the Mongols would, you know, fight with whoever the Russians wanted them to at the time. And that kind of, you know, mm -hmm. lowered the status of Kiev at the time. But from the beginning, the two were interconnected with one another. And I don't know if you've heard that Ukraine is a, which, Ukraine literally means borderland. That's what it means. Oh, really? I yeah. I didn't know that. Um, it's occupied such a strange place in history. You, you know, the Austro-Hungarians were interested in Ukraine too. Mm -hmm. uh, the Germans have been interested. Like I, you know, I, I think I don't want to bury the lead because uh, Luca did mention earlier that Ukraine accounts for about forty percent of uh, global wheat supply, and like. Like, there's ramifications of this war that are impacting Egypt. Mm -hmm. Randomly, Egypt is one of the biggest uh, uh, consumers of Ukrainian wheat. 
And so, like, they have a huge wheat shortage. So this war is impacting, like, people in Egypt. Like, yeah. and so, like, uh, I just want to... Uh, I We cannot overstate how the ripple effects of these conflicts, how why the world needs to care about these things. Not necessarily... We don't want to escalate with Russia, mm-hmm. per se, but we do need to make them... Uh, feel the pain of the these economic sanctions, in my opinion, because Ukraine has always been a prize because Ukraine was the breadbasket. Yeah, they still are the breadbasket of of uh, both Eastern and Western Europe, and so like like Ukraine might not have the um, the land mass, they might not have the resources of Russia, but God dang it, they have the soil. Sure, and their sure. soil is fertile, <laughs> you know? Well, and uh, what is it? I think, again, going back to the Cold War, uh, Nikita Khrushchev, uh, you know, former one of the former party chairman of the, of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Uh, sorry, I just had to make that as long-winded <laughs> as possible. Uh, don't, don't mind me flexing, no. uh, flexing my history degree on you. That's fine. That's fine. You go right now. <laughs> um, but... Like, he was assigned to Ukraine, and of course, um, you know, uh, the Soviets, when they didn't get Ukrainian compliance from the, from the Ukrainians, they started taking their food, seizing their food. They had NKVD officers, like, which is a precursor to the KGB, just confiscating anything and everything, which led to, you know, uh, I think it was called, I think some people tried to say it was famine, but it was not famine. It was man-made. This is the Russians starving the Ukrainians into compliance, or I'm sorry, the Soviets starving the Ukrainians into compliance, like, join us or die. Um, no, I think you're right. They were they were an independent republic for, uh, like, a decade after World War II, and it was a, starving, a starvation campaign. Right? Yeah, and it's an area that, um, you know, the... The Russians themselves have long struggled struggled with like their identity in the world because yeah. these are people that you know are on the to to get to Russia you have to go thousands of miles across Europe before you reach any Russian you know city whatsoever and culturally it's very different from the rest of you know Eastern Europe in and of itself they adopted you know Christian Orthodoxy in the um, you know, in the early days, they actually went shopping for a religion, and they were like, Islam, what do you got? And, uh, oh, no drinking? Sorry, we're out. Um, no alcohol? We're out, Islam. They like Judaism, but they're like, mm, we don't know if the Jews would really kind of accept that if suddenly a, an empire of, uh, you know, people just said, hey, we're Jewish now. And they don't think the Jewish community would really appreciate that. Uh, they looked at Catholicism, they shopped that around, and they were like, ugh, not a fan. But uh, Greek Orthodoxy, they were impressed with the ceremonies and what they saw, and that became the official state religion, and then they, you know, missionaries were sent out to convert everybody after the uh, the royalty and the court had already done so. So I used to actually, for work, I used to go to Serbia frequently, so I've been to a few uh, Eastern Orthodox uh services mm-hmm. they are kind of cool I, yeah. I and you know um i've been to a lot of services of various different faiths um 
one of my brother-in-laws, his dad is Jewish and his uh, m- mom is German and Christian. Mm-hmm. And my other brother-in-law, his parents are uh, Norwegian and German Lutheran. Okay. So, so you know, I I've been to a lot of uh, different uh, different uh, faith gatherings. Eastern Orthodox is kind of cool. Um, there's like an, um, you know, there's kind of a, a almost a, a, like an. It's hard to explain. There's like a Eastern, like uh, like almost like a Mid East like feel a feel to their culture too. It's like, uh, you know, there's kind of a little bit of um. I don't know. It, it's different. It's interesting. Sure, sure. <laughs> and uh, a lot of the traditions there are preserved because if the patriarch in Constantinople, you know, changed something or some yeah. religious practice, you know, changed along the way, it was written in Greek. And when it was sent up to, you know, the um, church officials in Russian who don't speak Greek, they're like, yeah, yeah, we got it. Give us the basics and we'll educate you know uh the uh the flock and the disciples on the basics of eastern orthodox christianity but anything they changed after that definitely was not adopted so russian orthodoxy is very different than greek orthodox or ukrainian orthodoxy because it's just it's been preserved in a time capsule because not much has changed compared to how often you know new practices were put in place in greece we cannot also understate the fact that a lot of these cultures uh, did develop similarly yet different in large part because a lot of the heads of states for a long time were grandchildren of Queen Victoria. Yeah, well, so, yeah. so like we have to, we cannot understate the fact that all of these royals and all of these uh, czarinas, they were like all of German descent um, from the Saxe-Coburg-Gotha family. Right? Well, <laughs> so like, yeah, there's there's that, um, and it's it's just wild, like the, the, straddling this like this. Uh, you know, we don't call it the Middle East; it's just called Russia. Right. But it's you know, is it European? Is it? It's Eurasia. Like, it's clearly it's got to. It has to be called Eurasia, I think. Yeah, yeah. Just because of, you know, the the amount of land that it shares with Asia, and, you know, it's not as warm as uh, parts of the Middle East are because it's so much further north. And Well, you know Kim Il-sung, the, the um, grandfather of Kim Jong-un, mm-hmm. uh, uh, who founded North Korea, he didn't speak Korean very well. Mm-hmm. Um, he was born in Russia. Yeah, I think and, I remember you telling yeah, me this. Yeah. yeah, and so he spoke Russian fluently, and he was uh, a puppet of Stalin. Yeah, and that's yeah. that's that's like um, you know something that uh, some people uh, should recognize. But his family, I believe, they were some type of Christian, I believe, Presbyterian, which is crazy mm-hmm. when you consider that North Korea has completely outlawed that, and like they treat it as if Kim Il Sung is like. The father, and then Kim Jong Il's son, uh, and then like Kim Jong Un is the playboy grandson of, of like the father of the Lord. Uh, right, right. They, like, they but, really like the gra- the grand. Um, is it the great grandfather or grandfather? Because um, Kim Jong, Kim Il Sung, that's the father of Kim um, Kim Jong Il, right? If yes. I'm not mistaken. Kim Il Sung is the grand is the father of Kim Jong Il, mm-hmm. and then uh, grandfather Kim Jong Un. Uh, and 
I, honestly, I don't want to derail this conversation. The mm-hmm. only reason I actually brought that up is because in that specific part of the world, I would like to discuss China. Mm-hmm. Sure. Save, <laughs> we'll save that for another okay. episode. Um, another episode? D- dive, okay. Diving into China? Oh no, my no, God. no, 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 no. Not diving into China, but China as far as Russia and how, um, how what China's interests are in this war with uh, Ukraine. And um, I think that maybe you're right. Maybe this is uh, another podcast, but um, but there are some things that I think that we can delve into as far as like the geopolitics of what what is on the line for mm-hmm. the world um, with this war in Ukraine. Um, yeah, I mean, because what's the end goal? Like the the propaganda machine in Russia has been you know churning out. A lot of the a lot of the media is state owned or it's you know controlled indirectly or directly by Putin. What they say is heavily censored by the government. Uh, so they've been told that they're liberating Ukraine from Nazis or something like that. Like, yeah, and uh, like Zelensky, it's laughable on its surface. Mm-hmm. Like Zelensky is not only a Jew; he's a Jew whose family was persecuted during the Holocaust, who had people in his family that died as yeah. a result and he's and that's not to say that there aren't people of all stripes that betray their own mm-hmm. in air quotes um sure. you know that's not to say that but that's not Zelensky and so like i think that um it's it's just very laughable on the surface um uh, from all of that and i i don't want to understate uh, the reason i brought up china is because like xi jinping Mm-hmm. Narendra Modi in India as well. Yeah, all of these leaders—they are any leader of an area that has semi-autonomous regions. Yeah, um, they are looking at what the international response is to this uh, battle in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. If Ukraine fell, like if they fell um, instantly, um, China would be in Taiwan right now, and that's my true feeling. And I believe that. Uh, what all of the things that Narendra Modi in India has done to suspend uh, the self-autonomy of Kashmir, mm-hmm. that would also be even worse right now. And so, like, there would possibly be a genocide going on. Yeah. And so, like, I think that what there's so much on the line here, and I think that uh, we need to really, really make sure that we... Um, don't miss this moment because we are missing this moment with the with the Saudis in Yemen, mm-hmm. and we are missing this moment with the genocide that they are currently committing in Yemen, and that's basically because of who we care about and who fits into the Western powers uh, dynamic of what our own propaganda machine wants to discuss. So I've heard this criticism uh, because. There was a, uh, what was it, a coup or a revolution, 2014, uh, um, or am I thinking of when Crimea was annexed uh, by the Soviets, not not by the Soviets, by the Russians. Yeah. Uh, I just watched the thing about it. I should have been paying more (laughs) attention. Um, But the the first aggression by the Russians was, like you say, the annexation of the Crimea, Um, and this kind of went off, you know, without anybody making a peep about it. I don't think there was very much international unrest as a result of it. I'm trying to think, 2014, there must have been much bigger stuff going on in the world at the time. Um, but 
either way, I think in 2008, though, again, I'll, I'll have to check my source uh, and my memory if that's accurate. There was a uh, revolution in Ukraine, or there was a populist uprising. I think they called it the Orange Revolution. Mm -hmm. um, but that was a U.S.-backed um, uprising or revolution to, you know, install a, uh, a pro-West, pro so to say, uh, government in there, which, of course, Ukraine being right on the border of Russia, how do you think Putin is going to take something like that? Yeah. So the fact that NATO exists, you know, is um, already a, a thorn in his side and has been in his side, and he's like, yeah, I'm sure he wants to say, guys, there's no more Soviet Union. Why does NATO still exist? And we're like, well... Just because uh, the Soviet Union is no longer the governing power of Russia doesn't mean that we've dropped, you know, all the weapons uh, and armaments that we still have within our border. So I'm glad you brought that up because I think we do have to actually discuss um, what we've done, even it, whether we agree with it or not, what we've done that Putin views as uh, provocation. Yeah. And I think that it's very important. And I want to be clear, this is not... Uh, uh, this is a thought exercise, so don't add us because this is not one of those situations where we're bashing America for the sake of bashing America. But if you're an adult, you have to recognize how did we get here? Sure, sure. Because yeah. those who don't recognize that are doomed to repeat history. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. So, so let's recognize this. So, Putin tried to join NATO in 2000 when he first came into power. Mm -hmm. um, and NATO specifically, they let everybody join. They told Russia, no. Mm -hmm. They declined their, their membership. Like Turkey, for example, that cannot get into the EU is in NATO. Yeah. Um, so let's just be clear that NATO has always been a counterbalance to USSR and to Russia. Yeah. That is, that is the point of NATO. So... I want to put into context of what America did when uh, the Bay of Pigs happened. Mm -hmm. um, how the how we freaked the fuck out when the Bay of Pigs happened. Uh, we had Russian troops uh, in Cuba, about 90 miles from our Florida shores. And so they had nukes there as well. And I think that most of us understand what happened uh, from there on. That's why we have Guantanamo Bay mm -hmm. today um, and all of that. But long story short, we were not pleased with them uh, having a presence on our near our borders. Right. Um, this is literally on Russia's border. So when Zelensky um, was approached by the West, and I want people to be to understand, Zelensky does not have the power that I think that Putin. Is trying to claim that he does. Mm -hmm. He does. He is. He is a man who has to uh, be humble and cede power. He's grabbing his big boy pants because what is he going to do? <laughs> he needs to because his people will be annihilated if they don't. Right. But before he prefers peaceful. Uh, like if you listen to him, like, and I also want people to understand. He's basically like the Trevor Noah of, uh, of uh, like, the, he had a show like The Daily Show. Mm -hmm. And that's who, that's, that's who Zelensky was. He, the, he was the Ukrainian voice for Paddington Bear. Like, he is an actor. Mm -hmm. Like, that's, uh, and so, but it's not like a Donald Trump situation. He's clearly a smart guy. <laughs> but um, I want people to truly understand this, that um, Putin 
has reason to be fearful of NATO. Mm-hmm. Uh, NATO is constructed as an alliance to counter him. And so if that is the case, and considering how America reacted during the Cuban Missile Crisis, we have to understand that. That being said, I did not think Putin was going to invade Russia, or mm-hmm. sorry, Ukraine, because... Zelensky withdrew his bid uh, for NATO like about a week or two before the invasion. So, mm. so I think that what I thought, I think Zelensky did what he needed to do in order to de-escalate the situation, sure. understanding what Putin could do. So I think that Putin really miscalculated and thought he would take uh, Ukraine in two or three days. Well, not only that, but like, if uh, Zelensky's move was to not, you know, join NATO as a result, then, uh, you know, to try to de-escalate, but you have Putin invade anyways. So it's like, yeah. should have just joined. Because yeah. now you'd have the full, um, uh, what is it, attack on one NATO nation is an attack on all. So now you draw the <laughs> ire of all NATO allies. But he's asking for, like, a no-fly zone. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. There, that alliance is created for a certain reason, um, for sure. Yeah. But, you know, I think that it's better to... Uh, it's a better way to... Uh, what we should say is... And you're right. Um, actually, Putin might not att- uh, invade Ukraine if it's NATO-backed. Um, right. Uh, he might understand what that means better than uh, their, like flirting with NATO and end up... So maybe it's the half measure. Right. Maybe that got Putin's uh, 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 like uh, blood flowing. But I do think that he miscalculated and thought that... like I think that we all... like America has told themselves pretty little lies that we will be treated as liberators. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure, Iraq, sure, yeah. Iraq, Afghanistan. Like we've told ourselves... Vietnam. This, Vietnam. Um, you know, I think that... Putin was telling himself those lies, too. Sure. But I think the difference is Putin actually believed it. Mm-hmm. I don't think Henry Kissinger or Dick Cheney ever believed that shit. <laughs> I think that they were just, like, posing up to power, mm-hmm. and they were trying to do whatever was best for themselves politically and best for their buddies that donate to them. Right, so, right. <laughs> like, um, Putin, on the other hand, I think he's... I think he thinks his smarts, his farts smell like like roses. I think that's he's bought into his own. Yeah, he's. Uh, um, if you look at the history, or I should say, just the life of Putin himself, um, he's an ex KGB guy, um, mm-hmm. number one, and uh, just his whole career. I think he's reluctantly become the um, the you know prime minister of. Russia, the Russian Federation at this time, but now that he is in power after, you know, Boris Yeltsin uh, left office, he's um, just kind of seized every possible opportunity to, you know, rob the country blind, um, you know, him and his friends, and if any of the other oligarchs didn't, you know, play fair with him, they were just eliminated or jailed. have you seen him at the tables that he sits at and how far apart he is from his oligarchs? Um, no, I haven't. So Putin has, I, I don't know the exact dimensions, but the table's got to be like over 100 feet. Yeah. Like he's sitting like 50 feet. And like from what I've read, from what I've heard on podcasts, like it seems like there are two things. A, 
he's obviously afraid of being stabbed in the back. <laughs> like, that is a fear of his. Sure, sure. But apparently Putin's deeply, deeply afraid of COVID. Um, and so this is one thing that's really interesting about these authoritarian leaders that mm-hmm. have to, um, that during this whole COVID pandemic, they've had to appear tough. Yeah. And uh, they don't want to be seen with masks. Because reports are also Donald Trump was uh, had similar ideas and and yeah. so like he he just like he knew he didn't want to get COVID but he also didn't want to make COVID a big deal because his he would lose his voter base or whatever sure right? sure yeah so with with men with people in power or positions of power like this um, yeah the image is very important right. um, the public image the public persona. He's and on a horseback without a shirt on. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's an image that is unfortunately seared into my memory for all time. <laughs> he, again, it's about control of the media. Yeah. So he wants to be, you know, uh, he wants to appear as uh, a strong man. Um, it's funny because um, we've all seen the movie Goldeneye, right? Yeah. James Bond, 1995. That was, or 96, I forget the theatrical release. But it was the first Bond movie that came out um, after the Cold War. Because you had the 80s, the ones in the 80s, which had Timothy Dalton in it. And that was, nobody really appreciated those. But I think people were getting tired of Russians. They're like, what about these drug traffickers? They're like, because I think that's one of the big uh, uh, enemies. It's some Latin American drug dealer. So I think they were like, ah, let's make him a Pablo Picasso type and let James Bond, you know, uh, tell everybody to say no to drugs. <laughs> But then you have um, the Pierce Brosnan 1995 version, and it's after the fall of the Soviet Union, and they make very big. Uh, the movie starts, you know, in sometime in the 80s, like the, as far as the time period is concerned, and then it ends, uh, or then the movie ends in the mid 90s in you know uh, a, a Cuba, uh, a, a Russian installation that was installed in Cuba. That is now being, you know, operated by uh, and Russians and or Cubans, if you remember the plot to the movie. But they talk about how Oromong, one of the villains in the movie, he's a, uh, you know, he, he was a career military man in the uh, in the beginning of the movie in the '80s, and then later on, he's still a Russian military man. And they're like, "What do you think?" You know, James Bond is talking to M, and he's like, "What do you think?" We're pretty sure this guy's involved with what's going on in. Uh, Russia, you know, with this golden eye, this, you know, EMP device that's been detonated. And M's like, oh, I don't think it's him. They're like, he's set him stuff up to be the next strong man in Russia. And it's like, ah, okay. And it's like, he's got too much politically to lose for him to, you know, be in line with somebody, you know, trying to, um, you know, use this golden eye weapon that the Russians have developed. Some sort of space weapon. So these authoritarian leaders, they all do this. Like Xi Jinping, for example, um, Weibo, uh, like Chinese uh, Twitter, I think it is, or it's Something, a Chinese yeah. social media um, app. So uh, people were starting to share images of Winnie the Pooh and Xi yeah. Jinping together. And Xi Jinping put an end to that. He put yeah. a stop to that, and he's like, this, this is bad. You cannot compare my looks to Winnie the Pooh. Well, so I think the backstory to that is there is a political um, opponent. Like there's a uh, mm-hmm. outspoken, uh, I, I forget his name, but he's he's either a journalist or a political activist or something like that. 
but he's the guy who started the whole, I guess you could call it a meme or whatever, but putting up pictures of <laughs> Xi Jinping next to uh, Winnie the Pooh. And uh, needless to say, he's in jail um, for doing this because the Chinese government found some reason to, you know, say he broke a law or whatnot. And they threw him in jail because he's a political prisoner. But I want, uh, I, I bring that up because I, it's, it's funny. Come mm-hmm. on, it's funny. And I think that ultimately, I wonder, is this, there's got to be some deep-seated insecurity issues that lead somebody to become a strong man because they all seem to have this character trait. Like, you got, you got Putin, you got, you got Xi Jinping, you got Rodrigo Duterte, who's doing this in Philippines, you got uh, er, er, Recep Tayyip Erdogan in uh, Turkey, you got, you know, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, crown prince in Saudi. Um, and you then know, who's the president of uh, Brazil right now? Oh, ja- Jair Bolsonaro. Yeah. But Brazil, um, they might be on the right track because uh, Lula da Silva, Livre Lula. All right. So like he's he's uh he's he's um he's out of jail. He is a political prisoner that was freed. Mm-hmm. Um Jair Bolsonaro literally um was the person that uh that had a a judge like a book Lula on like trumped up like like um uh charges. corruption charges. Basically they were saying that he used campaign finances to to get a beachside apartment. That's the most trumped up charges I've ever seen because that's what they got him on corruption was a beachside apartment. Come on, dude. Yeah, like right. whatever. Like um, it's they. He's enhancing himself financially. They didn't jail ha- him. They didn't have well. They they didn't have any bank accounts. They didn't have any money trail. They didn't have anything. Mm-hmm. And but the but the judge that booked him, Jair Bolsonaro, promoted him to the Supreme Court. I uh, just wanted to that I'd throw that out there. Sure, sure. Because you... that's what these guys do. Mm-hmm. That's what they do. They get a bunch of yes men, and I think that Putin is doing this right now. Um, Putin is unfortunately hasn't had real um, constructive criticism in two decades. Yeah, yeah. People are afraid of him for good reason right. because he will kill you. Yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, those oligarchs have lost about, I think it's close to like a trillion or more um, during the, this entire economic sanctions. Uh, so Putin should actually sleep with one eye open because mm-hmm. I think that when you are the inheritor of not the Bolshevik proletariat, but you are the inheritor of the czarist tradition, mm-hmm. you have to expect that at some point the people will have had enough. And that is not me just like blowing smoke. That is Russian history. Uh, if you know anything about the Romanovs mm-hmm. uh, and uh, what happened with the Romanovs, they have a long, bloody history with this. And it's hard to reconcile the morality of all of this because... In, in the end of Tsar Nicholas II's reign mm-hmm. um, and the end of the Rom- Romanovs, children were killed because they thought that those children were going to have some, uh, some you know, movement behind them. And so they had to get rid of the next generation. Even if they were, if, even if they didn't want to be leaders of Russia, they could still be used as a, you know, lightning rod to say like, look, we're the white army resurgent, you know, we're <laughs> yeah. going to, we're going to restore the Russian empire rather enough of this Bolshevik nonsense, um, communist nonsense. Um, but getting back to that political prisoner in China, um, the last photo of him before he was, uh, sentenced to jail 
was a picture of him holding a coffee mug, and it's got Winnie the Pooh on the mug. So even before he goes to jail, he still has the last laugh, for you know, on uh, at the expense of um, Xi Jinping. So I, I'm sorry that it's gone this long, and I haven't m- m- mentioned who I believe to be an American prisoner of war in Russia right now. Mm. Um, and it's uh, there's a high profile person. Um, so. I'm not sure exactly how people are going to view this, but Brittany Griner, uh, WNBA player, mm. um, she's a former WNBA champion. She's a former college basketball champion as well. So she plays in Russia uh, during the off season. Um, the Russian authorities, they booked her in February uh, in the lead up to the Ukraine war. So I believe this is actually very relevant because it seems like they were... Uh, like Putin was already leveraging his pieces in order to um, to invade. So he already knew he was going to invade hmm. uh, even uh, after um, Zelensky had withdrawn his bid for NATO. So I think this is very important. So Brittany Griner, um, hmm. so she is, um, I don't know how relevant this is, but it might be in a country that has outlawed LGBT rights. Um, She's lesbian. Mm-hmm. Um, she is uh, a black lesbian basketball player that uh, is a star player on. I, I can't remember the team in Russia, but she's uh, she. I think she's been in like the MVP running. So she's actually a known entity in Russia. Yeah. and they know her. So they arrested her because they're claiming that they found a hash vape oil cartridge in her luggage. Mm, of they, course. America, on the other hand, they're like, well, she passed our like, um, our our TSA, and we we don't see nothing. So yeah, um, I'm going erring on the side of ba- based on what I know about our TSA, based on what I know about the various other checkpoints that she would have gone through. Mm-hmm. I'm erring on the side of she's a political prisoner. Sure. And so they are try- They wanted somebody high profile. And also, they wanted somebody who's uh, possibly gay, um, possibly black, somebody who the Russian people might not might be willing to, even if they were a W, uh, like a basketball player, a star, they'd be willing to say, "Well, okay, fine, she's in jail." Mm-hmm. And I think that that's very important to uh, to uh, not yada yada that Russia has a lot of human rights abuses to their own people. Yep. Oh, yeah. There's no, there's no <laughs> doubt in that regard. Um, just like the what the average Russian has access to versus what the average American has access to, it's leaps and bounds different. Um, I, can I also make clear? Sorry, sorry to cut you off, but no, can no, I make okay. clear? This is not a hate Russia podcast either. Um, <laughs> the Russian people are suffering. Uh, we, uh, the Ukrainian people, are suffering more uh, right now because they're. Uh, they're experiencing shelling and bombs or whatever. Russian people are suffering uh, a lot from their regime to begin with, but also with economic sanctions. Uh, Are they they necessary in order to move the pendulum? I I believe so. But I don't want people to misstate that um, we're we're at odds with governments. We're not at odds with people. Um, and I, it's got to be clear, and because we do not, as Americans, want to be judged on the actions of our government when we disagree with them, when we disagree with the wars that they get involved in. So I just want to make that clear. This is not anti-Russia. 
or the uh, anti-Russians. It's like anti-authoritarianism as a whole is sure. something that needs to be properly discussed. Speaking of other political prisoners, um, Alexei Navalny, um, you know who that is? I do. Yes, yes, <laughs> another political activist. Um, he, uh, he finally got his sentence in a kangaroo court, um, and they uh, sentenced him to nine years in jail. So he's in, he's in a gulag in uh, uh, Siberia right now, and I guess that was just a temporarily holding facility. Um, and now they're like, okay, well, uh, here's your guilty verdict. You're guilty, and that's it. Nine years prison sentence for you. Um, because he was arrested when he flew back into Russia immediately. Um, and he's been kind of just holding in jail until they could have a, you know, a show trial for him. So he was poisoned in his underpants, and he literally in a courtroom called Putin the poisoner of underpants. Yeah. <laughs> like, this guy, the, uh, no, uh, uh, I'm glad you brought up Alexei Navalny, because this guy's this guy's a fucking badass. And, yeah. like, you know, there's a lot of Russian journalists also that are doing an about-face. There's a Russian producer recently, I don't know if you saw this video, but she um, was on, uh, she put up a sign uh, on the news show, like, it's something to effect of, I'm sorry we lied, the war, uh, the war is a lie, like, we've been lying, like, mm -hmm. whatever. So there are people within the journalist community also, as well that are, like, very... Chosen integrity over just yeah. supporting the, or towing the company line of, you know, do it's, whatever Putin says. It's hard to judge their morality because I think, like... In America, we have checks and balances. We're not perfect, mm -hmm. but we have certain checks and balances that an authoritarian or a wannabe authoritarian is only going to be able to fuck us up ever so much. Sure. Like they're ultimately they're 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 not going to be able to um uh like do everything, and they're not going to be able to uh you know get get away with as much as they want overseas. Yes, but yeah. on American soil, no. Yeah. And so, like, I think that's not true for the Russian people. I think, like, Putin literally has an iron fist, and, like, opposition to him can mean death. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I want people to understand not everybody is in, uh, has the heart to be a freedom fighter. We need freedom fighters. Mm -hmm. Not everybody can do that, and, and people have legitimate fear. So I don't want to judge the Russian people um, in that regard. Yeah, well, and now that um, it's happening to the Chinese in Shanghai, because um, yeah. now that Shanghai is under communist, or, you know, Beijing's control, um, they quickly have consolidated, um, uh, you know, their their power. Or, I'm sorry, am I thinking Shanghai? Am I thinking of the right place? I'm pretty sure, yeah. Um, but anyway... The anybody now that's working there, people are trying to continue as business as usual because it was you know controlled by the British for a while, and um, now that the Chinese Communist Party is saying, okay, well, that's it, the British are gone. You guys can no longer operate as a uh, autonomous region. Oh, you're thinking know? Hong Kong. Hong, I'm sorry, Hong yeah. Kong, yeah, <laughs> Shanghai. Yeah, I, I knew I had it wrong. Sorry, this is what uh, all my time <laughs> in the uh, international department has fucked, <laughs> fucked up my sense of geography. Hong Kong, yes, I'm sorry, Hong Kong, which is in the south of, of China. So it, it's almost about as far away from Beijing, the capital, as it can be. But either way, um, they were, you know, 
owned by the British for a while, and they got to operate, you know, fairly autonomously for a while, self-govern as best they could. Um, they are thoroughly Chinese people, um, but being in the South, I think, what do they speak? Cantonese, not Mandarin? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that they there are Mandarin speakers there, too, but yeah, yeah, there's yeah. also a strong English culture there, too. Because it was owned by the British, yeah. yeah. So, um, <laughs> uh, so because it's, yeah, Hong Kong, I'm sorry, I fucked that up. Uh, but anyway, so it's Hong Kong, and uh, yeah, the was it there was a movie made in like 1997 or something like that because uh, that was the original date that it was supposed to be turned over by the oh, British that's right. yeah. back to uh, but uh, you know a referendum was passed or something like that they quickly made a vote and they're like no 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 please don't do that um, and they got to be autonomous for a little longer but now it's well you Chinese know, Communist Party rules it's complicated um, so uh, Geopolitics in China, it's super complicated by a few things. There are facts that um, no government out, outside of the uh, Communist Party of China, mm -hmm. who I will say is not really communist these days, they're pretty capitalist, they're pretty, they're like a one-party technocratic dictatorship uh, monarchy yeah, type, type of thing. They have a feudal system type of thing going on, but they're like, Hyper capitalists, mm -hmm. and they are they, now, yeah. And but they also like seem to have some uh, regions that of people that have decent like workplace regulations, and then some regions of people that are just thrown to the wolves. So mm -hmm. like, it, China's really complicated, and I think that what people also need to understand is, regardless of what we think about their system, they did bring the most people out of poverty in human history and when we consider all of the advancements that they've done in terms of their highway systems and whatever um like their bullet trains all of that and mm -hmm. i think that china's also complicated by the fact that they haven't uh, they've engaged in colonialism mm -hmm. i think uh russia has engaged in colonialism russia currently is engaging in imperialism that's what that's what like putin has said that he wants to reconstitute the soviet union so like that is that is that is one of his goals i didn't realize that he was an ideologue i thought that he was just like a rich guy that took power and was okay with that. But it turns out he's actually a Russian ultra-nationalist. Well, yeah, it's like, um, again, feeding into the, the, the propaganda machine that they have over there. Um, I was in my political science class, and uh, there was a Polish lady in there. And she had to be like, I don't know, she, she had to be in her 40s or something like that. She was a couple years older than all of us. And, uh, well, a couple years, like 20 years, maybe, maybe less than that. But anyway, she loved living in Poland under Soviet rule. Um, granted, yes, they're autonomous, but they're still report back to Moscow, the right. leaders of Poland at the time. She loved it. She's like, there was no crime, no gangsters, no nothing. She's like, there was 100% employment. Everybody had a job. And I'm like, okay, yeah, those are all great things. I'm like, but, you know, you, you can't complain about anything else. I'm like... Your standard of living is relatively low compared to, uh, you know, the rest of Western Europe. Um, and uh, that's it. Um, it's, but she, she, um, she saw the positives to it. Um, and, I, you know, I could see how the Soviets in the early days 
did the same thing. You had a nation that was pretty backwater at the time that you have to have this, you know, rapid industrialization process in order to keep up with what the West is doing. Well, you the know, rest of Europe. Well, it's hard. It's hard to say. Um, I think the Bolsheviks started from a, a decent place. Uh, if you read uh, Lenin, um, I would say that he's probably one of the better ones uh, when it comes to uh, his ideals. Uh, I don't think he was running counter to democracy. Mm-hmm. I think that's what ended up happening in Russia. Yeah. And because I think that what you have to consider and what I think is hard for the world to consider is that Russia had slavery until 1917, basically, right? Right. Yeah, they had, like, I think Western, yeah, Western Europe had pretty much all but outlawed, like, uh, feudalism, and at the same time, Russia's, like, codifying it. They're like, man, this is a great system. Let's lock it in in our our laws. The serfs literally belong to the land. Yeah. (laughs) Like, so I, I think that, like... There are certain codes of morality that you can apply to a society that has certain aspects of equality and civilization that you can't apply to a slave society. Um, I think that when you consider that um, sometimes when a human is enslaved, they're going to rise up and kill their enslavers. Sure. Um, while killing is bad... Is killing your enslaver bad? Mm-hmm. While killing is bad, is killing an invader to your country bad? Those are things that people need to reconcile when we talk about war, right? And so, right. Like, and so, like, I think that um, Russia, it's really hard um, to figure out. I think the moral of the story is that when you have um, power concentrated in few hands, mm-hmm. then absolute power. Uh, power corrupts absolute power corrupts absolutely yeah, and i think yeah. that that's the problem here it was never the idea that we want to uplift the people and all of that because i think that um state owned is not the way to go mm-hmm. i think that ultimately what i would like is for workers to get the fruit of their labor yeah. and i think that that's what we need we need we need worker co-ops where the workers have a say in actual business decisions, mm-hmm. uh, have the ability to share in the profits that they help accumulate. I think those are the things that we need, but that doesn't mean that we need uh, authoritarian. Actually, I would say we definitely don't need an authoritarian dictator doing that. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the things people always forget is that the right and the left are both susceptible to a dictator Mm -hmm. um the reality is protect democracy especially uh even if the democracy that is installed runs counter to your opinions well you know elections have consequences Mm -hmm. make sure the elections are free and fair yeah and all that um that's something the russian people don't have um and so like um and i wish that they did yeah Um, yeah that would be helpful it kind of makes you wonder um because, again, you, you have the Soviet Union collapse, and then you have these people, um, like, what do you do? What do you do? This is a country of people that know nothing about capitalism. They're taught that, you know, capitalism right. is a great enemy of the people. So, of course, you you have the people that do know a little bit about capitalism. Because um, I think even some of the early oligarchs that, uh, you know, were appointed, they're like, well, we have our oil industry. What's the market rate for oil? There's no such thing. They trade it internally and then they sell it, you know, 
But even the barter system incorporated markets. I think markets have been around predating, um, like, capitalism. I, I, you know, I think, I, I'm glad we were touching on this a little bit because I think that there's there's a danger um, that people say with hypercapitalism that um, brings around unfairness mm -hmm. and, like, where we excuse uh, underpaying labor um, yeah. and uh, and what I would call wage exploitation. Yeah. And I think that the problem is that people will get fed up. And when people get fed up, they react. And when they're reactionaries, then sometimes violence happens. Sometimes bad shit happens. And I think Russia is the, uh, the test market for this. Mm -hmm. So people need freedom. Yeah. People need to get the fruits of their own labor mm -hmm. and people need to uh, have a society where um, their participation doesn't crush them uh, to the point where they uh, have to worry about not being able to retire in dignity. Uh, well, yeah, it's like they're basically like, like I say, the, the access that the average Russian has to anything, to education, to, you know, um, retirement, uh, like, what do they have compared to your average American? Like it's leaps and bounds um, different, and with their particular economy where it's so focused on um, heavy industry and like you know mineral extraction, it's very susceptible to you know market prices for what those particular resources you know uh, go for at any given time. Um, I think uh, I heard something most recently. Like there's there's a YouTube channel out there again. Shout out to them, Economics Explained. Uh, they were talking about, can the Russians even afford this? And it's like, well, they were virtually unaffected by the housing crash of 2008 because their financial systems did not, you know, nobody had thought up a scam as brilliant as that to, you know, mess with their, um, their economy. So they were shielded in that regard. Um, but it was like a, uh, you know, if they, it's because they were behind the rest of the world, um, or I guess their their economy is actually similar to Italy's. Um, uh, actually, Russia's GDP. I, I I don't know the exact number, but it's um it's it's like almost identical to Italy's. And, and that's and is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, <laughs> if you consider that Russia should um it has far vaster land with mm -hmm. far more resources. Uh, Russia is underperforming, so yeah, uh, a yeah. large part of that has to be. Honestly, Italy has far more buy-in with the powers of uh, of the West than Russia does. So mm -hmm. Italy has more trade routes uh, than Russia. Yeah. And so, like, I think like um, it's one of those things that it's it's hard to reconcile with the fact that we do business with uh, uh, unlikely bedfellows all the time. And uh, yeah, but. Like when when do those situations lead to war, and when do those situations propel um, our adversaries uh, uh, in in these uh, wars to uh, be cocky enough to actually go through with it? And you know, and I think that that's um you know I I guess I'm kind of getting back to the whole dependency on oil mm -hmm. um uh, problem, and I think that um you know, uh, there's, there's that. And can we diplomatically in uh, using economic sanctions, can we change Russia's tune? And is, is, is Putin motivated by this, by economic sanctions? You know, it's going to be tricky. Um, the people that support him, the, um, 
the uh, the oligarchs that are helping you know line his pockets. As soon as they start losing money, suddenly I think they've already lost like a trillion. <laughs> they could lose more. They could they're, still they're lose more. Lose a lot. <laughs> as soon as you start affecting uh, the people that are helping, you know, Putin rob the country of Russia blind. As soon as they start losing a lot of money, he's not going to have as many friends as he currently has. The government is, uh, you know, the uh, uh, they're going to be able to support him as best they can, but they're going to get to a point where it's like the the money is not going to, you know, be worth it at this point. They're su supporting him is not going to be worth it at this point. It's too risky because now nobody knows what this guy is going to do next. But I think he's a very calculated um, person and would not make a move, you know, without thinking about all the possible outcomes, uh, you know, that could happen. Well, um, well, there's one thing that could help him. So the ruble has, it's just depleted its value. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's like, I think, a quarter of its value from the start of the war. It's, yeah. It's paper. It's it's toilet paper is basically what it is. Yeah, but oil but, is traded in U.S. dollars, so... Right, but the thing is that is... And this is something that I've considered here. Um, is is Putin going to demand uh, payment for his oil to uh, from Western Europe in the ruble because the doll, uh, he's iced out of the uh, international banking system? And will that... Uh, uh, Restabilize the ruble um, because if if the West if Western Europe actually they they need to fuel their societies and they actually do need because forty percent of of Western Europe's oil supply comes from Russia. Mm -hmm. um, America, we're on the other hand about three and a half percent, and sometimes it's like one percent. Now it's zero. Yeah. Um, but like we are not reliant on Russian uh, fuel. We have we have actually the highest fuel production in the world. I think we get the majority of our fuel from Canada and Mexico. Anyways, a lot of people think Can it's like oh Saudi Arabia. And it's they're like, number no, three. No, no, no. They're number um, three though. Saudi Arabia is a player there, but um, you're right. Canada is number one. Mexico is number two. And when you think about how much like if you actually look at the millions of barrels or gallons or whatever you want to um however you want to quantify it like the the number one that mexico or canada produces for us or the number one and two that mexico and canada supply the united states with is probably like again i need to see the actual numbers but it, it's huge even though saudi arabia is number three it's still, um, you know, a pittance compared to the number two, number one slots that Canada and Mexico well, occupy. Well, OPEC in general has actually, um, the OPEC nations, they've limited their supply um, intentionally in yeah. order to drive up pricing. Um, they're, they're trying to recoup their money that they lost early on in the pandemic. Yeah. And then they've already recouped a lot of it, and now they're like, oh, we could price manipulate and nobody's gonna like do anything about it <laughs> all right cool let's continue to well, do this so, yeah. like, so like i think that um that those when countries and people start a movement for uh, nationalizing oil mm -hmm. that's why it happens because they're like yeah you know what yeah this resource that's under our ground mm -hmm. uh why should like uh, two or three companies and their CEOs and their shareholders, why should they reap all the benefits? Why shouldn't it be the people's oil? Right. And so, like, I think, um, uh, like, some of these things that we recognize within a mixed economy um, where you have certain regulations that 
um, propel certain social safety nets while also keeping ingenuity within markets um, alive because that's where a lot of our techno technological advancements do come from mm -hmm. and understanding the the value of private and public sector i get why people get so fervent on one side or the other and i think that that's what um russia the people were just being so crushed that they led to a bolshevik movement mm -hmm. The Bolsheviks, uh, they they um, you know they got into an arms race with America. They lost, and uh, then that ushered into a new czarist regime with Putin. And ultimately, the Russian people are are just um, they're, caught in the middle. They're caught in the middle. Uh, the Ukrainians are just like, what the fuck? <laughs> what did we do? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But again, I, I think um, the fact that the U.S. is in Russia's backyard by supporting Ukraine, um, again, supporting their, supporting their, their current government um, and thinking that Putin's going to let, uh, you know, an American-backed government, you know, get away with it. Of course, he's going to want to take control because when nothing happened when Crimea was captured and, you know, like you say, um, uh, Chechnya... Uh, I, I heard it on another podcast where they're like, okay, well, people are seeing what Putin is doing. He's attacking. If a, if NATO nations are not being attacked, he's Putin is taking that like, oh, okay, well, so all these other non-NATO nations, those are free for grabs, aren't they? Okay, I'll go ahead and take those. And that's why you have Chechnya and, you know, being attacked and uh, Crimea being attacked and... Well, you know, I, 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 I don't know if you watched uh, Zelensky's, um, President Zelensky's uh, uh, interview with, uh, with uh, Fareed Zakaria on uh, Fareed, uh, GPS on CNN or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so, like, uh, I'm guessing you didn't, so I'll fill yeah, you in. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I did not. Yeah, so I watched, I watched the interview, and Zelensky made a really big pitch um, for U.S. military help um, beyond what we're doing. And I want to clarify, we are helping them, mm -hmm. but we're helping them from the sidelines. They sure. are fighting the war. We are not. Right, we, right. There are no American soldiers or troops that are in direct conflict with Russia. Mm -hmm. And so there is a specific line that President Biden has drawn. I don't agree with him on all of his handling with, uh, with a lot of things, uh, like on domestic economic issues. I don't uh, necessarily... But sure, sure. but I will say that he has made a strong stance on uh, one issue in particular, which I want to clarify what a no-fly zone is. Sure. Go so ahead. I I would like uh, for people to imagine uh, the realities. Zelensky was calling for a no-fly zone, and my heart uh, goes out to him. Mm -hmm. He wants to protect his people and those planes that are dropping indiscriminately dropping bombs on his people on civilian targets it, it's it's got to be soul crushing they did um they did a demonstration in kiev um where they had a hundred uh, like hundreds of baby strollers and each baby stroller was to represent each baby that was killed in mm -hmm. this war so powerful emotional stuff how can you not want to like help them but on the other hand, what a no-fly zone literally is, is that America takes up the mantle, our military goes to Ukraine, mm -hmm. and shoots down Russian planes. Right, yeah. And a lot of people are saying, 
uh, yeah, don't do that. Um, <laughs> well, well, like, well, I just want people to understand, what would America do if somebody shot down American planes? Like, we would, like, we would go to war so fast over that, right? Mm-hmm. So what we need to understand is, and this is not that we are not with the Ukrainian people, we have to be very deliberate and calculated in how we do this, while also protecting our own national security interests. Mm-hmm. And like getting into a hot conflict yeah. with Russia is not the way to go. And I think that um, economic sanctions is the, the, the better bet because they will feel that, but we're not literally having our troops shoot down their troops because I don't think Putin wants to go to war with the U.S. No. I don't think he does. I think that if Ukraine was in NATO, he, he probably doesn't attack them because NATO's pact would demand mm-hmm. the hammer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, I think there were some MiG fighters in Poland that were supposed to be sent over to Ukraine, and uh, I guess the U.S. was somehow involved in assistance with that, but I don't think they said, nah, don't do it. Um, I just I just finished listening to something about it. Um, so, yeah, people are, are saying like you say a no-fly zone um yeah what does that mean to do and it it's not just a declaration it it means that you have to shoot down yeah. non uh enemy aircraft and if you're asked and if Zelensky is asking uh you know the u.s to do that and it's like whoa okay it's like i like you ukraine but uh but i but that's <laughs> that's, a, that's a big ask but that said Zelensky should implement a no-fly zone in his territory uh, mm-hmm. for Russian aircraft, but it should be his military. I, 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 I hate to say it. I mean, like, it's not that I'm throwing them. First of all, their military has been has shown uh, a huge capacity to do so. Mm-hmm. And I also want to give a shout-out. Um, I know I um, badmouth uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan from Turkey, and he is... He is he is an autocrat monster. Don't get me wrong. Yep. But yep. it's his. It's drones that literally drones that Turkey uh, uh, sent to Ukraine. Like uh, I think after Crimea, Ukraine basically fortified their military, and so like they're fighting this offensive because uh, they saw the tea leaves and they saw that Russia could invade us at any moment, yeah. and so like they yeah. they actually. Like Zelensky was very smart and um and strategic, and it looks like the um police chief in Kiev um I forget his name um but uh, he is now the military commander of hmm. Kiev, and he's one he's he's a badass. He's very successful. I wish I remembered his name, <laughs> but uh, but I but I think that it's really important to uh to note that uh like a, a couple hundred like. Turkish drones are what are um, like causing mayhem uh, for Russian fighter jets and like is like actually saving a lot of Ukrainian lives um, and you know it, it's um it's admirable you hope to never be in a position of war but if there's ever a war that's justified it's an invader coming into your homeland to kill your civilian population my dad sent me a video he found, and uh, it was uh, some Russian ships that were um, attacked at the port. Um, one of them was on fire and sinking, and another one just quickly, uh, you know, pulling out of the harbor to get away from the uh, this other vessel. 
think there were three vessels total, all of them damaged, but yeah, one of them, the Ukrainians managed to sink it. So yeah. now they're, I don't think, I, I don't know what the Ukrainian Navy has at its disposal, but I think this is just because of it was its close proximity to the, um, to the port that the Ukrainian ground forces were able to get close enough to it to set the vessel on fire. I mean, um, I don't, I don't want to like, uh, understate the fact that like people are dying in this but it is there are some comical aspects of this like like russia i don't know if you saw the line of tanks that Mm -hmm. russia apparently they logistically uh like uh fucked that up they did not have the oil for them to proceed so they were just sitting ducks there was like 40 some odd tanks and the ukrainian military just bombed them one by one by one set them ablaze tanks no more Mm -hmm. the people inside died like like it's like like it's like benny hill music is going on with with uh uh, the russian uh logistics and that's leading to really bad morale amongst the their military too and well um, like as as one last point um seven thousand i this is a a decent estimate seven thousand russian troops Mm -hmm. um uh, ported dead already. Yeah. Just by contrast, between Iraq and Afghanistan for two decades, 6,500 American troops died. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty bad um, from the Russian perspective and from the Ukrainian perspective, the number of casualties. But yeah, like you say, the uh, Putin was expecting you know this to only take a few days for the Russian forces to push through and capture the capital of Kiev, but Right on the border of uh, Ukraine, all the uh, I think the Russians have moved all the equipment into close to the border via rail. So the railheads uh, at the borders have all been destroyed. So now <laughs> the uh, yeah by the Ukrainians. Yeah. So I, again, like you say, the the logistics of it, they've been unable to you know any uh, any armor, any equipment that's you know now pushing forward. Um, has had to do so with very very thin supply lines because now the uh, the Russians cannot use the Ukrainian rail system to bring in um, you know more equipment. Um, it's all at least the track connecting from the borderlands is now uh, severed. So there's no direct fast path uh, into Ukraine. As a result, you have to fight for every inch and every mile or kilometer, whatever you want, in order to get to the capital. And now, like you say, the Ukrainian forces have been fighting back much more fiercely than the Russians have ever expected. And even doing little things like um, the Russia, the Ukrainian people are taking down street signs. Yeah. So now the Russians don't even know where the hell they are. <laughs> They're having to rely it. on paper maps. And it's like, holy shit, paper maps? You're I love not, it. You're not connected via satellite? You can't communicate like where you are relative to where you need to be so i mean that's pretty brutal um and uh i i saw some footage it was um it was drone footage i think i don't think it was like turkish drone footage i think it was just somebody flying like a you know remote controlled drone with like um i guess there were a couple pieces of ukrainian artillery that were destroyed or something like that and a and a ukrainian apc pulled up to kind of expect the damage or whatever and then was immediately, you know, it was an ambush that had been set up by the Russians. They immediately um, started taking small arms fire. And then from either sides of this highway that the vehicle was on, you had Russians lobbing grenades and 
uh, Ukrainians lobbing grenades back and forth at each other as they were just, you know, shooting up the street. And I think they're, they're barely the width of a four-lane highway apart from one another attacking. And you could see the, you know, Russian troops, you know, moving back and forth on either sides of the highway. And you could see Ukrainian troops taking cover, you know, in the ditches on the sides of the highway and intermediate explosions in the middle of the highway where grenades are, uh, are going off between one another. Um, but yeah, thank goodness they have those Turkish drones, um, that they can at least fight back from the air if they don't have, you know, the necessary, um, um, the, you know, the, the necessary air power in order to keep the skies clear. Um, because yeah, once, if you, you have to maintain air superiority, um, no, 100%. or some sort of air yeah. defense. And if you don't have air superiority, you have to have some sort of anti-air defense system in place, which I think is what the, uh, the Ukrainians have been receiving. What is it? The Javelin missile system? Yeah, that, that's correct. Stinger missile system? That's correct. And I think that that's ultimately, obviously, that's that's what's going to help them win this war, um, if they are. And, uh, like, I know that I'm saying this in very optimistic tones, mm -hmm. but it's actually a reality that they could potentially win this war. What, the problem is how many civilians die in the process and um, right. how how do you get Putin to stop uh, indiscriminately dropping bombs? But on the other hand, do we get them more supply of these Javelin missiles to shoot down these bombs? Mm -hmm. And does that help sustain them? Because in a one-for-one -one battle with the military, Ukrainian military is better than mm -hmm. the Russian military in this conflict. And it's not like they're super... Uh, over outmanned either, um, uh, or even outgunned on a military military campaign type of uh, uh, situation. They are outbombed. That is that is the thing. And so I think that um, what what will it take for a peace deal or surrender or this that whatever? Putin needs a victory. Um, I think that uh, an authoritarian madman like him needs a victory and. This is something that I wanted to discuss with you, actually. So, I, uh, at, as a Sikh, um, we have, prior to Geneva Conventions, because we are an uh, ethnic minority, um, in India, we're about 2% of the population. We're a religious minority, I should say. Mm -hmm. um, and so, we're 2% of the population. So, throughout his, our history, we have had pogroms against us. Um, we have had to militarize. So I do empathize with the Ukrainian people in that regard as well because they've had to uh, militarize um, and they've had to bulk up their military. But before the Geneva Conventions, uh, we have um, a story in Sikhism where uh, a man, Baikonea, um, in battle against the uh, Mughal army that the uh, Sikh gurus were fighting against that were uh, doing forcible conversion, mm -hmm. he supplied um, medicine and water to the opposition, to the enemy. And so um, some of the Sikh soldiers, they were like appalled. They were like, why are you giving food and comfort to the enemy? Mm -hmm. And so he was brought into a tent with our guru, um, which uh, is, uh, means teacher in Sikhism. Um, and so uh, he told him, well, you know, the, when, when we're at war, we're at war but these are injured soldiers that I am going to help mm. in that this situation. Um, we, are, we are not monsters. We, uh, we have to 
we we have to win the war, but we do not have to lose our humanity in the process. Sure. And so those were the concepts that were in my religion. But I'm I, I wanted to bring to you uh, this uh, a big part of why the Ukrainian uh, war efforts are better than the Russians mm-hmm. is because the Ukrainians, as part of their war tactic, um, they live in the land of fertile um, uh, soil. They need to. Uh, keep their food supply for their soldiers and mm-hmm. their people and cut tr- uh, put a stranglehold on the food that gets to the Russian troops. Yeah. And and the thing is that it runs counter to what I <clears throat> grew up believing a- as a Sikh um, and it runs counter to that the idea. But I think that where I come down on this ultimately is this is the right tactic and I think that in my religion, um, there was an assumption that both militaries had similar ca- uh, uh, capabilities. But the yeah. problem is that the Ukrainians don't have nukes, the Russians do. And I think uh, that was another problem that I thought was kind of interesting, because um, a lot of people are like, well, send aircraft over there. And it's like, well, Ukrainian pilots don't know how to fly U.S. equipment. Right. They, know, they know how to fly everything that they know is Russian equipment. That's all they've had access to. That's all they've trained with. Those are the weapons they got. So it's like, to send them more weapons, it's like, well, where do you get them? Oh, they're all manufactured in Russia. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, but the MiGs that the Polish have, those are Russian-made. So, of course, um, Ukrainian pilots would be familiar with something like that. Um, I've heard some criticism, too, over, uh, like, again, China's involvement or uninvolvement in this, what their opinion is, what they have to say about what the Russians are doing. I don't know. What have you heard? So, I, honestly, China, um, I think that their entire involvement, their entire thought process here mm-hmm. is purely economic. Yeah. Um, I think that um, there was a time when uh, they need Russia mm-hmm. uh, as a foil to Western powers because China wants to fill that vacuum. But it's far more complicated than that because uh, China needs Western markets yeah. for uh, to sell their crap. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I shouldn't say crap because, honestly, uh, at this point, our supply chain is China-dependent. You know this as well as anybody. Yep, yep right? sure. And so, um, ultimately, we so China's in a tricky situation. They don't... They aren't... Uh, so in the Mao and Stalin days, they were ideological bedfellows mm-hmm. with Russia. They, it's and I know Mao and Stalin had their problems, but right. they had I they had a certain ideology uh, uh, together. And uh, Kim Il Sung was brought into that with North Korea as well. And I think they had that kind of thing going on. And I think that ultimately, it's important to remember that China is out for China. Um, mm-hmm. What China wants is they want uh, to control economic markets and to be able to control their own backyard. Yeah. But China is a colonizing country that doesn't do boots-on-the-ground colonizing. They do economic colonizing. Like, what they have, they are, they have a push for Africa going on right now. Yes. Um, yeah. And I think that a lot of that is about uh, resource extraction, this, that, whatever. But they're entering into these agreements with these governments where they're actually like building 
public goodwill in certain situations. Um, not everybody agrees uh, with this in Africa, of course, and I don't want to speak for on the behalf of an entire continent. But, right, right. But, you know, uh, the thing is that China is, uh, like, they're, um, you know, I have I have family in Kenya. Um, my mom was born in Tanzania. My grandma was born in Kenya. And so, um, so um, from what I've heard from family um, mm-hmm. is that, uh, ultimately, China is, um, you know, it, it's better than the West, Western countries. Is Western countries they enslaved <laughs> the African continent. Yeah, uh, yeah. They, you know, they had boots on the ground. They had military campaigns. So China isn't doing that. Um, but what they are doing is they are having access to the African resources and African markets that is fueling China society. And I think that. They're colonizing in a smarter way. They've done this in the Balkans, in Serbia as well. And um, so they are going towards the Eastern Bloc as mm-hmm. well. And I think that China and Russia are competing on an... I shouldn't even say competing because chi- uh, Russia can't compete with China on a, on, a, um, on any level. China, China used to buy their weapons from Russia. Now Russia is asking for weapons from China. So like, well, yeah, the Chinese have you know made <laughs> copies of uh, you know Russian weapons and they made them better or cheaper. You know, um, sure, yeah. There's a lot of stuff that um, the at least a lot of weapon systems that the Russians have made. They don't want economic grown. sanctions though. Mm-hmm. Like they want the West to play ball with China. Yeah, it's um, one of the things. With China, like again, we could do a whole episode on China, but and I also again here's me flexing my history degree. <laughs> I took history and culture of China as well when I was in college. It was part of like um, me fulfilling my credit. They're like, you need to take like a non-Western <laughs> civ class, and then nice. it will kind of round out your you know historical expertise or historical content area knowledge. And I'm like, okay, history and culture of China, and uh, history and culture of Latin America. And then they said, oh, history and culture of Russia? That doesn't count as non-Western Civ. And I'm like, it doesn't. And I'm like, that's not what I learned in the class. They said it's not a Western civilization. And they're like, mm, okay, but we're the ones giving you your degree, and we disagree. It just meant, like, um, like, they, but, oh, like white. Uh, <laughs> that's some, what they meant. Something. I guess, yeah. <laughs> like, but they didn't say that, you know? Yeah, they're like, they couldn't be on a... <laughs> They couldn't put that in writing. They couldn't say that to your face. Yeah. They just had to say non-Western as they kind of leaned yeah. in and winked at yeah. you. You know what we mean. Um, but anyway, taking that his that history course about China. Oh man, you 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 sympathize for what they're doing now and why they do what they do, the way they do it, because um, you know the Han Dynasty, their former imperial powers, um, just. Uh, you know, collapsed in on itself. Like, they could not govern the population and their unwillingness to trade with Western powers. Like, uh, you know, Germany, um, uh, you know, England, um, the the Dutch, the French, everybody wanted to trade with Asia, you know. Uh, you could make the case that the age of exploration, you know, Christopher Columbus, all these guys trying to find a way to circumnavigate the globe to get to India, you know, and eventually China, they didn't want to trade with the Ottomans anymore because the Ottoman Empire occupied, you know, yeah. all, all of Northern Africa, 
parts of you know the Balkans. parts of Spain. Yeah, the Balkans, the Black Sea. Like mm-hmm. this is why they've been at the Crimean has been the the Crimean War before World War One, mm-hmm. before World War Two. Um, well, if it's before World War One, it's obviously before World War Two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But this is why you know these wars were fought because the Ottoman Empire is starting to retract in on itself. So then, of course, other European powers see this as like, okay, great. Now we'll be able to trade or find a way to trade with you know Asia without having to deal with the Ottoman Empire anymore. Um, but uh, you know when the Europeans are trading with China. The Chinese only wanted to be paid in silver, not in gold, like yeah. they were in West. In the West, um, they also never imported anything, no goods. They yeah. they demanded cash payment, and it was cash and silver, and this pissed off all the Europeans because they're like, we got all this crap we're trying to offload, and we can't get them to buy it or trade with us. They well, want to be paid. Well, China has been self-sustaining, um, you know, and yeah. I think like few countries can do what China and. When you look at population centers of the world, like China, yeah. India, U.S., mm-hmm. number three, um, one thing those countries all have in common is a lot of agriculture land, right? Yeah. And so, like, and they have arable land, and they have good soil, Ukraine as well, um, mm-hmm. on a smaller, much smaller scale. And I think that um, one thing that I... Um, that I find interesting is there was a point when China and Russia had mirror societies, mm-hmm. um, and they uh, were mirrors, uh, mirror governments um, to each other to some degree, not not a complete one for one. And I think that um, that that is no more. Yeah, hold on one second, and we're back. We had a brief respite there, um, just because uh, Sydney's home now, so uh, didn't want her to interrupt. But we're gonna wrap it up here because we're already at like an hour forty. So we're uh, uh, this is by far the longest one we've done. Um, yeah, I, I, I want to finish up my point though, uh, if I can. Yeah, uh, yeah. Go ahead. I, so, um, so China and Russia for quite some time they had mirror societies, mm-hmm. and I think you were like, saying yeah. Yeah, and I think that what we have right now in China, of course, um, we have a lot of human rights abuses to the Uyghur Muslim population in uh, in southern China and there's like re-education and China has yep. had a strong history of uh, of forcing forced assimilation and all of those things mm-hmm. uh, they do not respect cultural integrity of different peoples uh, within their uh, their minority groups so that's one thing so China a case can be made that they're irrational actors in that because that is something that they don't actually have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, they are doing this uh, for ideological reactionary reasons. Um, yeah. They're not, like, they really strategically don't have to do this. But I think that what people need to understand, when it comes to economics, every single move that China has made on an economic scale is actually pretty logical. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that we can't wrap our heads around because we always think of China as the Communist Party. And I think what right. what Communist Party has actually, first of all, they're ultra-capitalist. And I think that what Communist Party is a stand-in for is they're a dictatorship. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they've made that synonymous. So it's not, it's not the inheritors of the Stalin, Mao, Lenin movement, right? Mm-hmm. It's not the inheritors of this. Um, and I, I'm not trying to make any moral qualms about those uh, those past movements, but 
And I'm not trying to give China any passes on anything. So yeah. I want to make that clear. But when it comes to economics, uh, nobody can say that they aren't rational actors. So China's going to do what China does for themselves. Yeah. And that means they're not going to... And my prediction is they will not be involved in the Russian-Ukrainian war. Um, for that reason, uh, their logical economic interest... Um, and Xi Jinping is better at this, apparently, than Putin, because Putin, I thought, was at the very least a rational actor on an economic level. But it turns out he's an ultra-nationalist that wants to reconstitute the Soviet Union. So mm-hmm. China is not that. Yeah, and China has various autonomous regions um, within it. But again, majority of the population is you know concentrated on the coast. It makes sense. That's where they're going to trade from. That's where all their manufacturing is set up. And... Um, in the uh, in uh, the sixties and seventies, when you know the U.S. was reaching out to China because they wanted to, you know, basically set up a a new place to manufacture, uh, because at the time Japan, you know, had become this world power. You know, after uh, after the war, twenty years on, they're manufacturing their own cars and start manufacturing electronics. <laughs> You know, much better than anything available here in the, the states. J- the Japanese Navy, by the way, also famously kicked Russia's ass. Um, Russia has a like so. Russia's military tactics has always been: we got a lot of Russians. Yeah, they throw a lot of bodies, and I don't want to like. They literally like we needed that during World War Two. Uh, mm-hmm. We needed them against uh, the Nazis, a hundred percent. Yeah, and but the thing is that. They're not strategists. They're not known for military strategy. And I think, like... Not known for for winning offensive wars. Either. Right. It's all been defensive wars that they've yeah. won. They can um, maintain positions because they can throw a lot of bodies and force them to conscript to the military. <laughs> That's, like, yeah. You know. no, and, and nothing against them as well because, you know, 80% of the Wehrmacht is concentrated on the Eastern Front. Sure. But again, right. is that a good idea? Like, you're, you're, you have to move your front line you know from north to south you have to move it thousands of, of miles all at once eastward and if one part of that line starts to buckle you know and becomes a salient it's not long before you know um, uh, the Russians can pinch that salient off and then you have you know thousands of men you know surrounded uh, you know surrounded that now have to fight on all sides you know in order to uh uh, you know, break out of the salient. Um, it's just like if you have a line and then like a little bubble forms like right here, this is your line pushing forward. So um, that's what a salient is called in military tactics. Um, so so real quick, I guess if we don't have much time left, like what, what, do you, what is victory in this? What does that even look like? You know, conflict? yeah, that's going to be real tough because if... If Putin doesn't get what he wants, he could just press a button and then say, all right, start shooting again. Um, and, you know, then what happens? The Ukrainians have to go back to fighting. Right, so right. Um, what's the ultimate end goal? What does victory look like? Uh, you know, I'm not really sure. Obviously, we want, you know, peace in Ukraine and we want the Russians to leave um, because they don't want to be there any more than, you know, the Ukrainians want them there. And... As you might have heard, like they've been lied to. The Russian soldiers have been lied to about why they're there. They're not denazifying Ukraine. They're not. <laughs> Absurd. They're not, I, yeah, I, they're not I, liberating. I almost didn't 
shouldn't even want to like discuss that. It's it's just absurd on its face. Uh, of course, you know, like, yeah. Uh, that's just Putin trying to gaslight the shit out of us. And yeah, I, and I don't like it. You know, he controls the media in Russia, so he, that means he controls the narrative in Russia, and he could say whatever he wants in order to justify his actions. Well, now you know the Russian soldiers that are there are finding out that you know that that they're there for unjust purposes. Right. So now, of course, their morale and their willingness to fight is going to be sapped. So it doesn't matter how many troops Putin throws at it. They're not going to want to fight. And, of course, at home, you know, you've got people in the streets. Or I'm sorry, in Russia, at home, the Russian home, you have people in the streets now protesting the war, and Putin is doing everything he can, his security forces, to throw people in jail and to shut them up and to get them off the streets. There's a few former oligarchs that are former oligarchs because they've spoken out against Putin and they're in exile in the UK. I'm right, sure they're right. still rich. I'm sure, sure. they're, but they're they've decided to like cut off their uh their future money supply. But you know what? Let's say they have a hundred million dollars, they'll be fine. And yeah. so like I think like. There are some people that reach that level and they're like, okay, I'm escaping Russia and I'm going to start being a critic of Putin and just live life as a rich person in mm-hmm, the UK. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that um, it's important to, like, uh, understand there um, that it's it's very complicated. Um, uh, what what victory looks like for me is uh, peace and security for the Ukrainian people. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and ultimately, I think that that can only really be achieved if uh, if regime change happens not at anybody else's hands. Uh, we don't want Putin to turn into a martyr. Mm-hmm. It has to be regime change done by the Russians. Yeah. And so I would like to... Um, I, I do appreciate that some of these journalists are linking with uh, Western journalists mm-hmm. and all of that because... They're risking their lives um, yeah. uh, to do this, and not they're, only, yeah, they're and fighting. They're fighting for democracy in Russia right now. They're risking their livelihoods first and foremost, but they're all, like you say, uh, one step further. They're risking their lives because yeah. if you, if you speak out, then you're just deplatformed, and it's like, oh well. Yeah, I guess, America, I guess, you're right. Yeah. I guess you didn't like yeah. being a journalist after all, and yeah. getting at least a journalist salary, which is a well, you know, a cut above what the average Russian is making. You know, it's it's not exactly an honest living because you're being told what to say, but you're getting paid more than the average Joe for sure, and you have a little bit more economic security. But yeah, and now you're throwing that out because, and now potentially your life is being put yeah. in danger because now you could be you could uh, be considered an enemy of the state in Putin's eyes. They could they could come up with whatever with whatever I charges mean, they want. I mean, enemy of the state can also extend to your family. As well. Right, right. That's that's what that's the tact the KGB tactics to uh, intimidate, and that's what a lot of these author- authoritarian rulers uh, like North Korea does that as well. And mm-hmm. so, I, yeah, your family is in prison, like you're born three in prison. Generations, I think it's something yeah, it's crazy. it's fucking ridiculous. Dude, yeah. So uh, our last segment for the podcast, uh, it's I meant to do this um, on the first episodes with my sister, and I forgot both times. So I'm gonna do it with you. Uh, we're gonna do what's called good guy bad guy. Like I'm gonna okay. name I'm gonna okay. name a person, and I'm gonna say good guy bad guy, and you're gonna tell me one or the other. Okay. Um, or you could say I you could say neither. Um, okay. I'll give I'll give you that option too. Okay. So uh, Vladimir Putin, good guy bad guy. Bad guy. Bad guy. Okay. Why? Um. 
so he is definitely um, not in it for his people. He's mm-hmm. in it for himself. Sure. And I think that he is uh, willing to sacrifice as many lives as it takes to get uh, to uh, like get what he wants, which is reconstituting the Soviet Union. So I I think that he is willing to sh- uh, poison his uh, political opponents. Uh, I, th- I think I saw some video where some journalists, he's doing press in like another country and of course he's wired up to an earpiece or whatever so that they could interpret for what is being said. But they asked him, they're like, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Putin, like you've been in power for this amount of time. Any political opponent you've had has either been dead or poisoned or exiled. They're like, care to explain? And he immediately like takes off the earpiece and like folds his hands together and then just launches into this counterattack um, argument about it. Um, I didn't. I didn't. Um, I need to rewatch that so I could get the gist of what his response was. But it was a pretty bold, uh, bold action. But I'll go ahead and I will. I will go ahead and agree with your assessment there. Uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, good guy, bad guy. Uh, I would say good guy. Um, mm-hmm. I think that he has the potential to become a bad guy um, because of circumstances. Sure. Um, uh, Nestor Machnow, um, it comes to mind, who is a, a Ukrainian anarchist uh, mm-hmm. warlord who did a lot of good for a lot of people, but on the other hand, uh, a lot of his troops uh, raped women in various villages that they went to. So it's very complicated by yeah. that history. Um, but the man was a liberator for Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, uh, so I would say Zelensky is a good guy who is going to be forced to do bad things. Okay. Uh, Angela Merkel, good guy, bad guy. <laughs> Neither. Yes, I know, she's <laughs> Neither. I, know she, I know she's a woman, but... Uh... No, 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 I, I get what you're saying. So I would say, actually, no, I would say good guy. Um, mm-hmm. I would say good guy mostly because... Well, she's not in charge anymore. No. It's Olaf, um, what's his name? Uh, Gerhard Schroeder? Uh, no, uh, the Prime Minister of Germany. I thought it's, it was Gerhard Schroeder, wasn't is, it? Is it? I thought it was Olaf something. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. You're right. Olaf, um, I don't remember his last name, but... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no. Um, Gerhard, I think, was before Angla. Um, actually, Angla... So, Angla was um, one of the most stable um, uh, politicians in uh, Western Europe, but mm-hmm. on the other hand, her staunch opposition uh, to... Uh, her staunch... Um, like opposition to lifting intellectual properties to the COVID vaccine has really prolonged this pandemic far mm-hmm. longer than it needed to be and killed um, far more pe- millions of people around the world. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, you know, there's um, there's a lot of things from a neoliberal standpoint that Angela Merkel has been uh, a part of that has instituted uh, Northern Hemisphere supremacy over the global South. And I think that... Uh, uh, they've. She's also been a part of a lot of resource extraction mm-hmm. as well. So, gotcha. Well, I think that just about wraps it up. Um, we'll go ahead and call it here, because um, we're like I said, we're at hour fifty four now. So this is by far <laughs> the longest we've ever gone. I like my sister. The first hour um, we recorded, um, I think I could just tell she was bored by the end of it, and then by the second one we went even longer. And she's like, uh, the first episode. Um, was about, um, oh gosh, I don't even remember now, but the second episode was she wanted to do biological warfare. And I'm like, oh, okay, I got some examples that I could share with you. 
and when I was telling her about it, I could just see her eyes glazing over, and I'm like, well, but I made her tell me what brought this on, and she was saying, uh, she's like, oh yeah, I work with somebody, because um, she works in a hospital, and she's like, I work with somebody who's an anti-vaxxer, and I'm like, in a hospital? And I'm like, yeah. this is somebody that studied medicine? And I'm like, granted, they're not a doctor. She's like, no, not a doctor, just in the technical, you know, uh, labs, somebody in the imaging department. And I'm like, man, and I'm like, it goes to show you, like, just because you're educated in a specific, or in a particular, you know, field, again, they're not a virologist, but just because they have some exposure to medicine and how the human body works that it's doesn't necessarily mean anything your your mind can still be changed i mean smart people are susceptible to propaganda Mm -hmm. um smart people can be become cult members yeah um like i think that that's uh that's a scary part about humanity is that um you know dr king was very correct when he said that um he uh was more concerned about the 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 moderates that were more uh, uh that were more um aligned with uh the status quo and with tra- protecting tradition mm-hmm. um who weren't outright right racist uh than the KKK members is at least he knew where they stood right, but right. the other people um there are far too many that um society to this point has worked ish mm-hmm. for them maybe not perfectly but it's worked and so they can't see how they could be a job loss away from like uh from uh financial ruin right that they could be a dictator getting into office away from being put in a gulag mm-hmm. so i think that far too many people these concepts are just so hard for them to understand and i can't i i believe it might have been stalin that said that uh uh a one person dying is a tragedy. Mm-hmm. A million people dying is a statistic. Yeah, and I think that's attributed to him, but I don't know if it's him that said it. Um, but but I think that that mentality stands that we uh, we can we can uh, want to save one person, saving Private Ryan. But right. then we don't think about the soldiers that died in that war in the process of saving Private Ryan, or so... or or even in the war in general. That's what I tell my sister because uh, a lot of times she comes to me and she's like outraged about something and I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I'm like, calm down and zoom out. And I'm like, change your perspective. And I'm like, you're, you're super focused in on one particular aspect of the argument. And I'm like, you need to consider the other side, despite what your feelings might be. You need to put yourself in someone else's shoes and hear them out and talk. Because if you're not going to talk to someone and just going to stay, you know, isolated in your little bubble, and I'm, and then of course, uh, you know, suddenly I'm a political enemy, and I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? I'm like, how could I become a political enemy of yours, you know, just because I don't blindly or you know, hundred percent agree with your political position? It's okay if we disagree. Um, I remember my geography teacher telling me, he's like, a lot of people say. We need consensus in politics, and specifically American politics. And he's like, well, if you want consensus, you don't need democracy. And he's like, the whole point 
is that you're supposed to be able to disagree from, with each other and vote in it's, the people you agree with and vote out the people you disagree with. And you know, That's how it works. And it's very healthy, actually, to, to learn about what you don't know. And I yeah. think, like, like uh, a wise person once told me that if you're an atheist, read books on religion. If mm-hmm. you're religious, read books on atheism. Yeah. Uh, you know, if, uh, if, if you're into basketball, read books on cricket. Like, yeah. you know... Like, and that's just a funny example, but I think mm-hmm. it's true. I think that... Jordan some, played golf. Yeah. So, so <laughs> and exa- baseball. No, there you go. So, like, I think that when we step out of our comfort zone, there are things we learn about ourselves. There are things that we learn about society. Mm-hmm. And it might entrench you further into your uh, belief system. Yeah. Or it might uh, open up some doors to new ways of thinking. And I think that that's super important. But I think that the thing that people who react that they get uh, they can't lose sight of, we have bad faith actors yeah, in this process. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I don't wanna like go too much longer on that. But, sure, sure. You know, but yeah, like I, I get why your sister reacts in these situations is there are bad faith actors that are yeah. ramping it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But we'll go ahead and call it there. Thank you so much for stopping by to record. Um, this was a lot of fun. Um, That concludes episode three, um, the Ukraine versus Russia episode of the history of what's happening now or potentially known as, trust me, I'm a history major. I don't know. I'm going to put I'm going to post a poll in the uh, the episode uh, notes so people can vote on that. What do you like better? History of what's happening right now or trust me, I'm a history major. Anyway, thanks for listening. Thanks.